We did get the memo, is I think what I'm supposed to say. So what does it mean to follow Christ? I mean, the, the idea of discipleship, you've heard it. It's a term used extensively in Christian circles. But what does it mean to follow Jesus? I mean, does it mean that life is easy and good and, and filled with excitement? That if you pray and if you study and if you serve in the church, that your health and your, your business uh, projects and your family are all going to work well? I mean, how, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And when do we hear, or do you hear, or have you ever heard that in fact following Jesus can be difficult and painful and problematic and hard and, and, and really uncomfortable? You know, the, we've moved towards this, what some call and have called cheap grace, easy believism, where this, if you just believe, then, then all's going to be kind of shiny and pretty. And, you know, this is not a new issue for our church or for this time. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, many of you know the name, he's a, a, a German theologian pastor in the middle 20th century, and uh, he wrote a book in 1937 called The Cost of Discipleship. Uh, he was remarkable in writing this book, actually, because it was just, of course, before World War II, and uh, he was here in the States, he was teaching at Union Seminary, had many friends here, and uh, while the winds of war really started blowing, uh, they had encouraged him to stay here to wait out the war here. Uh, he went to England on his way back, and they encouraged him to say, they encouraged him uh, the same, to stay in England, don't go to Germany. But here's what he said. His idea was, if I'm going to minister to the rebuilding of my people, because he figured that German was, Germany was going to lose the war. He said, if I'm going to minister among these people, I have to suffer with them. So he wrote this book on the cost of discipleship, about cheap grace and, and costly grace. Let me just read to you a couple lines out of the, uh, beginning chapter of that book. He says, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is a treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It's the pearl of great price to buy by which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye, which causes him to stumble. This is the difference between cheap grace. Now, he is fighting this in the middle of the 20th century, but it was no different in the middle of the 19th century. J.C. Ryle, another great English pastor, writes these words. He says, Nothing has done more harm to Christianity than the practice of filling the ranks of Christ's army with every volunteer who is willing to make a little profession and talk fluently of experience. So when we talk about following Jesus, there's a hardship, there's a difficulty associated with it. Now, this is a dangerous sermon for me to preach. It's dangerous because I can easily, inadvertently, but easily slip into making you feel guilty. That if you don't go overseas, and if you don't give everything that you have up today, you're somehow taking the easy road. I don't want to do that. Uh, the, the other error is its opposite, which is just that I can so explain the text and make it just easy and soft for you that conviction doesn't come to you where perhaps it needs to. And, and, and there's much in terms of trying to apply this idea when we read the text. It's hard to apply it as broadly as I need to in a group this large and this varied. So 
I have to trust that God by his spirit will bring about a, a proper and right conviction and encouragement as he deems you need. But he gives us very straight, very clear teaching on what it means to follow Jesus. That's the question we have. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, he's going to tell us here. If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 8, we'll read 18 to 22. Just these, just these five, five verses, Matthew 8, 18. We read, now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. These are very, very sobering words. So the, the first thing, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, I think the first thing we see is that Jesus calls disciples by his own authority. Jesus has the authority to call people into his own kingdom. Now look, look back at 18 with me. He says, when Jesus saw a crowd around him. Now this makes sense to us. If you were here last week and we saw in chapter 8, verses 1 to 17, he healed a leper. He healed a, a paralytic who was dying, the servant of a centurion. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. Uh, you can just imagine the amount of energy that was being created with Jesus' work. I mean, the paralytic, probably the centurion servant, he could have gotten up and come to thank Jesus and told 150 people on the way. We saw in 8.17 about how the whole town came to him. He was healing those with diseases. He was cleansing those with demons. I mean, you know that would have spilled out to the surrounding towns. I mean, can you not imagine the swell of people coming to him? I mean, it would have been colossal. And it's understandable, right? Life's easier with this guy around. Goodness gracious, he can do anything we need him to do. He's a good thing. He's a great to have around. Popularity and fame was probably increasing. And so you'd think from at least a worldly perspective, things are going great. But then notice what he says. It's when the crowds gathered that he says, he gave orders, no less, we're going to the other side. Now, why would he do that? I mean, if you wanted fame, if you wanted popularity, if you wanted a big audience, we got it right here, and now he's cutting and running. Why? Well, we know that Jesus' mission wasn't just to heal people so that they could just die healthier in a few years. While, while, while miracles were demonstrating his glory, as we saw, that wasn't the primary purpose. Nor was his purpose to gain an audience or just to get a crowd. His purpose was to come and fulfill the promise of God that God would send a Messiah, a servant, to save us from the dilemma called life. He, Jesus was this Messiah coming to preach that God's kingdom is now here in himself and with himself. And Jesus has authority as the king of this kingdom to come and invite people into the kingdom. We've already seen his authority in the first half of chapter 8. I mean, he's healing people. He's cleansing people. Right? We're going to see it next week when he calms the storm on the seas. He has authority over creation. We're going to see it in the following week when he begins to, he cleanses the demoniac. He has, he has authority over darkness in the spiritual kingdom. We're going to see it in the week after that when he forgives the paralytic. He has authority to forgive sins. Who has authority but God alone? Well, so does Jesus. He has authority to call people into his kingdom. Now, you kind of see it in the text here. It's implicit in the first man. The first scribe that comes to him 
kind of says, I'm going to go with you wherever you go. And Jesus kind of, both correctionally, but I think in a soft rebuke, says, no, you won't. You don't even know what you're signing up for. Jesus has authority to call people into his kingdom. It's his kingdom, and he calls people into it. You see it more explicitly in the second one when he says, let me first go bury my father. And he says, no, follow me. Let the dead bury the dead. He's the commander. He gives the instructions as to who and how we come into his kingdom. He invites and he sets the parameters for what discipleship looks like. We're not given this free reign to say, well, I think discipleship means whatever. He tells us here what discipleship means. Now, this is no small issue for us. We live in a Western culture where individualism is valued greatly. And if we choose to want to follow Jesus, we think it all resides on our lap. The the, the choice to follow is all ours. And we see here, now what's interesting, by the way, is in the first century, if you had a child and you wanted him as a pupil to learn under this teacher, the pupil had the right, or the parent of the pupil, had the right to choose the teacher. The teacher didn't choose the pupil. The pupil chose the teacher. But here it's different. Jesus as the teacher is the one choosing. He's the one calling people to himself. We know this, of course, in John chapter 6. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Paul says in Romans 3, no one seeks God, no, not one. So in other words, if you're a Christian here, you're grateful. You're a grateful people. You're a humble people. Because you have been, your response to the call of the gospel has been initiated by the very grace of God. Uh, This wasn't a decision you woke up on, you decided, you thought, well, I've weighed all my options, I think this is the way to go. That isn't the way we enter the kingdom. It's the call of the gospel, initiated by the grace of God. That is how we enter the kingdom. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, but you're interested in the things of God, you know, your interest is peaked and you're thinking about it, you're like, that's the grace of God in your life. I don't want you thinking, you've come at the end of your rope, There's no other options. Let me try Christianity. When there is an interest in a person's soul towards the things of God, God's grace is already being evidenced by that. No one seeks God. No, not one. So when you begin seeking God, when you are a seeker, as these two examples are, then in fact God's at work. Now, for the non-Christian here, you're kind of ambivalent to it. It's, eh, you know, Christianity is great for you. It's not really great for me. I would remind you that the call of Jesus is not equivalent to religion. In other words, the call of the gospel, this idea that Jesus has come and he said, now that I'm in the flesh, I'm bringing a kingdom and I'm inviting people into it. This isn't religion. Religion we can define as perhaps good advice, moral instruction. Maybe these things will help you live a good life here and and find acceptance with God later. Religion is advice. It's good advice on how to live to find acceptance with God. Jesus isn't giving good advice. He's giving good news. And the good news is the fact that he has come to do what we can't do. We cannot earn or somehow work up for God to finally say, ah, you've done enough. Come on. Come on in. You've passed the bar now. Jesus, the good news is not good advice. It's, it's, I've done it for you. That's why it's good news. And so when you hear the gospel preached as a non-Christian, we're saying that Jesus is calling people to follow him, believing that he is the Messiah who has brought this good news in his person. 
And it will be carried out as we work through the rest of Matthew. And we're going to see him suffer and then ultimately die and then be raised to establish his kingdom. So that's the first point, that, that Jesus calls disciples by his own authority. Again, for the Christian here, my heart begins to warm. And I'm thankful to God for that. But, but then secondly, uh, Jesus calls his disciples to follow him while embracing costs. There is a cost. Jesus, it's true, has given you everything. But in some respects, Jesus calls from you for everything. Look at what he says. He gives us two examples here. Jesus gives us a scribe and this other man who's another disciple. Look with me in 19 and 20. The scribe comes to him and says, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you want to go. And, of course, Jesus responds with those words. Now, let me just remind you of what a scribe is. A scribe is an, a learned man, educated, trained in linguistics and grammar. He would translate the, uh, he would make copies of the Old Testament to be used in the synagogue. He was a respected man. He had authority. He was a teacher of the law, a wealthy man as well. And so he comes up. Now, the scribe, at least in the Gospel of Matthew, is always positioned as antagonistic toward Jesus. But we don't know about this one. We don't know his motivation. He seemed genuine, but we don't know. But he comes up to him. Perhaps he was flush with excitement over the miracles. Perhaps he was excited that Jesus, you know, the scribe's a teacher, but Jesus was a teacher and the quintessential teacher. So perhaps he's thinking, I want to I follow him. And so that's what he does. He comes up and says, I'll follow you wherever you want to go. I'll follow you. Now, clearly, and you and I can look at it from the kind of looking backwards, and he was a, we can call him a hasty follower. I mean, he was quick to make some serious commitments. Did he really know what he was getting into? Well, I don't think he did. And I think we can tell that by Jesus' response, because Jesus says, hey, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And what's Jesus saying by this? Well, I think he's drawing an analogy. I mean, obviously, it doesn't say that Jesus never slept in a house or that, or that Jesus never, you know, that he just spent every night out in the open air. It's not saying that, of course. I think Jesus is drawing an analogy that even the wild animals of God's kingdom will have it better than Jesus. That Jesus has renounced worldly comforts. He's embraced humiliation. He's chosen a life of service. And what he's saying to this man, that if you want to follow me, this is the life I'm leading. You sure you want to go after me? I think the scribe was thinking, hey, we got it down. We got this guy now. Let's get on Team Jesus. And he's got power. He's going to heal people. He's going to deliver them. And he's going to lead us right to Jerusalem. And then we're going to set up the kingdom. And it's going to be victory after victory after victory. It's going to be great. Life is going to be better. Look at this guy. We've got it all in hand now. It's like getting the football team, and we have the one eight-foot guy at 400 pounds. We're going. We're winning. It's easy now. And Jesus says, it's not that way. It's not that way. It's not going to be that way. If you want to follow me. Now, now I want to be sure and caveat things to make sure I'm not. It's hard. It's easy to preach black and white. The gray is a tough area to hit. Jesus doesn't ask for the same costs out of the same people. But there's a willingness that we have to have, a willingness to give it all. He won't call it from all of you for all of it, but there's a willingness to give it. I mean, when you came to follow Jesus, did you understand the cost? Did you understand what he was asking here? 
I mean, I, I think about some of us, when we look at discipleship, and, and we're quick to say, yeah, I want to follow Jesus. But we struggle reading our Bibles. We struggle coming to church every week. I mean, really, every week. We, we struggle with doing the things that are part of the Christian experience. And yet we're, re- we're ready to throw our lot in with Jesus and follow him. Do we really understand it? Perhaps some of us made more of an intellectual decision into the faith. It made sense to us. It, it, it was reasonable. Uh, we have smart friends who thought the same thing. And so there was no real conviction of sin. There wasn't a growing love for Jesus. It was just, yeah, it made sense. Some of us, I think, decide for Christ it's more of an emotional thing. We're caught in a bad place. We're hitting some hard waters and hard times. There's Jesus, so sympathetic and so, and so calming, and so we choose to follow him. Perhaps some of us just followed Jesus because we didn't know who else to follow, frankly, but we didn't understand the costs. And then, of course, when crisis comes, what happens? We begin to waver on our commitment to Jesus. We actually get resentful to him because why are you treating me this way? I'm on your team. I'm wearing your jersey. And we forget about the the parable of the sower where the seed falls among the rock and it grows up fast, but when the worries and the troubles of the day come, boom, it's gone. It doesn't have the roots to sustain it. I wonder how many decisions among us that we've made that didn't count the cost, that really didn't think about it. Matthew Henry, even a century before Ryle, writes this. So he's back a bit. He writes, There are many resolutions for religion produced by some sudden pangs of conviction and taken up without due consideration that prove abortive and come to nothing. Soon ripe, soon rotten. So have you considered the cost? Have you counted the cost of what? When you consider the kingdom of God and what it entails, have you considered those costs? I mean, for some of us, it may be giving up a part of the American dream. It, it, it could be this, this willingness that, that your time, you're a busy person and you have very little time for yourself. But counting the cost could be giving up some of your time to advance the gospel in the life of another brother or sister in this church. Uh, it, could be, um, it could be you being willing to engage the gospel at work, even though it feels awkward to do it. It could be you uh, being willing to lose the approval of your peers by believing in something as silly as Christianity. It, It could be you intentionally engaging in some effort your neighbors, perhaps having them over for dinner or perhaps just just somehow befriending them in terms of hopes to share the gospel with them. I, I, mean, I mean, look at the cost that you can embrace. How about in your marriage? Let's not even go outside the church. Just husbands and wives, the way we sacrifice for each other. Is there a willingness in your life to sacrifice for your spouse for the sake of the gospel? I mean, because he calls you to husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church. You know, or, or within this church. I mean, this is where I mean the applications can go on endlessly. But are you counting the cost? Jesus told us to, actually, in Luke 14. He said these words. He said, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, Everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. 
That's the call. Have you counted the cost? So, so being a disciple is counting the cost. Following Jesus is counting the cost. Now, let's look at the second example he gives us in 21 and 22. He says, another disciples said to him, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. This is kind of more of a confusing passage. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, now this is, a, he's called a disciple, but we know in Scripture that not every disciple necessarily is a committed believer. Um, he does call him Lord, and, and every time the word Lord is used in Matthew for Jesus, it's in reference to faith. But we don't know for sure. But because what he does is he says, let me first bury my father. Now, now that, that does sound reasonable. I mean, it does. The, the law required that children are to care for their parents in terms of burial. In fact, the law allowed a person to skip religious services, to, to postpone the circumcision of a child, even postpone reading the Bible so you can go bury your family member that has died. Even priests who were not allowed to touch a dead person were given an exemption to bury their parents. So it's reasonable. So what's going on here? I mean, the guy says, let me just go bury my dad. Well, nobody, I don't think, few scholars think the dad had actually died because Jewish law required burial within 24 hours. And so if the dad had actually died, he wouldn't be talking to Jesus in Capernaum. He'd be burying his father. Most think it's more of a a Hebrew idiom where let me go bury my father is saying, let me care for the responsibilities of my family until my father dies. Could have been the firstborn son. He had responsibilities. And so he says, hey, Jesus, I want to follow you. I'm going to follow you, definitely. But let me take care of these family responsibilities first. So he's putting his family above this call that Jesus is given. And that's why Jesus confronts him and says, follow me, you let the dead bury the dead. What's that mean? Well, obviously, Jesus doesn't think that zombies bury people. That doesn't happen. The dead won't bury the dead. He has to be speaking spiritually, an Ephesians 2 kind of idea, where we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So let those who have not been called or who are uninterested in the kingdom, let them attend to the issues of digging holes and putting bodies in there. You follow me. Jesus knows this man's heart better than he does. Jesus knows that he doesn't understand the primacy or the urgency of this kingdom. Jesus knows that he doesn't get it. Jesus is offering us this radical view of a kingdom. Now think about it. Jesus has come from God to declare and inaugurate a kingdom for which to draw us into, to be with God forever. This is incredible. Us, temporal beings, fraught with sin, bodies wasting away before our eyes, are now being invited to enjoy fellowship with the creator of the universe forever. Is that valuable to you? Would that not draw you right to it? Would everything else not slide back? Not to second, third, or fourth but 300th or 400th. This is Jesus' point in Luke 14. He says this. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What's he saying? He wants us to hate our parents? Well, no, no, no. Not an active hate, a comparative hate. That in 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 comparison with our love for the king who's brought a kingdom, nobody is to be a close second. Carol and I had to walk through this when my father was 
uh, aging and we were going, going to go overseas. We had to deal with this. Steve and Christy have to deal with this. And the reality of it is, this isn't a call, by the way. If you think this sermon is about getting missionaries, that's crazy. If all of us are going to go, who's going to send us? You can't do that. It's just right here and right now is what I'm talking about. I mean, when we talk about... So if the first one was too fast, this guy seems too slow. If he's too hasty, then perhaps we're too reluctant or too distracted. When we look at this, how do we look at it in North Raleigh context? Well, I don't want to take a square peg and pound it around hole, but, but I would say, at a minimum, is how distracted are we in terms of making Jesus primary in the way we make decisions? In other words, this really comes to bear, like with your careers, for example. When the demands of the career begin to conflict with and go crosswise with the demands of Christ, who wins? Whoever wins is your Lord. It's your job. It's your career. Or your personal goals. When those demands of the personal goals begin to go sideways with the demands of Christ, what do you give way to? If it's your personal goals, that's your God. That's the, that's the thing that you're living for. Or your marriage and your responsibilities of a family. If those demands preclude you from sacrificing yourself for Christ, then they're your God. Now, obviously, there's a lot of nuance here that needs to be, that needs to be addressed. To, you know, for me, a lot of the struggle is, this is good, is this best? I don't always know. And so I want to pray about it. I want to draw in some friends that I respect and appreciate their view on Christian life and, and have them add input. I want to expose my life to them and say, am I looking at this right? I keep finding a good defensive position to do what I want to do as opposed to following what Jesus would have me do. Paul kind of likens it to this in terms of being a soldier. He says, endure hardship with us like a good soldier. This is one of his prison letters, by the way. He says, no one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. This is what it means to make Christ primary. We want to please our commanding officer. We want to please the one who has died for us. What does it look like? How can I best honor Christ in this decision? It may be serving your family. It may be saying, no, we're all going to suffer on this one, kids. We're moving in this direction. It may be that. And the writer of Hebrews kind of says the same thing in a different way. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Hebrews 12 is a different paradigm. It's saying that your life is a race, and it's a race to God. It's not a race to retirement. It's not a race to accomplish something. It's not a race to finish this life healthy. It's a race to see the face of the creator of the universe. And if that's my life, analogous to a race, then everything gets thrown to the side so that I can make sure and get there in the way I'm supposed to be there. And so everything ultimately falls under this. God, what is greatest for your glory? Because in that's going to be, of course, our joy. So we have this, this call that Jesus has authority to call disciples, and with his authority, he's saying to you, count the cost, Christ is primary. So that's what it means to follow Jesus. It means that I have responded to his call of salvation, and it means that I'm going to embrace the cost that he brings into my life. So how do we do this? 
This is a tall order. This is a difficult passage. I mean, it can leave us feeling very, very, okay. It, it, it's kind of like you're welling up the energy to try to achieve a task that you've never succeeded achieving before. I don't want you to feel that way. I want to give you the fuel for how I think the scriptures call us to engage this. I don't want to stimulate white-knuckled obedience. I don't want you to make a new resolution of how you're going to do better this week. I want to put those things aside. What I want you to do is look at, look at how Jesus identifies himself. Look where he says in 20. He identifies himself with the expression, the Son of Man. Unique title to give. Why didn't he say the Messiah? <clears throat> Probably because the Messiah had too many nationalistic kind of implications to it. He calls himself the Son of Man. In Scripture, nobody calls Jesus the Son of Man. They may call him Jesus. They may call him Lord. They may call him Christ. They may call him, they may call him a lot of things, rabbi, teacher. Only Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. Why? Well, Because the term the Son of Man is loaded with freight. The Son of Man first speaks to the absolute glory and the majesty of Christ. It comes from Daniel 7.13. There's this intersection between one like the Son of Man appears before God himself, the Ancient of Days. Here's what we read. Behold, when the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. This is Jesus, the servant before God. And to him, to Jesus, the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. All the other kingdoms, the, the kingdom of, of Babylon and Persia, the kingdom of Assyria, the kingdom of Rome, all gone. His kingdom will last forever. So when Jesus says, one like the Son of Man. This is the fuel to consider the glory, the greatness, the beauty of Christ. To consider all that he's done, all that he is. If you don't begin to meditate, to consider this, yeah, you're, you've got years of failure ahead of you. You're, you're, years of struggle. But what's interesting about the Son of Man is it's not just the glory of Christ, but it's also the humanity of Christ. Later on, as we get through, uh, as we continue working through Matthew, the Son of Man will be used more frequently about the suffering he's going to endure, about the humanity that he chose, leaving glory to take on flesh, take on our limitations, take on our weakness, take on our brokenness. Jesus Christ becoming like us. The Son of Man is, is God incarnate, like us, fully God, fully man. I mean, it's just incredible when we won't often cross the road to serve someone less than us, that he would leave all of glory to come and serve us in this way. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means Jesus calls disciples who follow by beholding him. That, that our goal, the fuel of being able to do what he's saying, is by looking at Christ, dwelling upon his greatness, looking at his humility, and just being in awe of him. I mean, really, discipleship has to flow out of worship. It has to flow out of worship. This is really important because most of us tend to go in one of two ways. We tend to look at discipleship and say, okay, I've got to do better. Now, if you have been wired by God as being more disciplined and you're more structured, you're going to do better with this. You really will. If you want a white-knuckled discipleship, you'll do better. 
And, and, and you're going to get out your Bible, and you'll probably read your Bible, and you'll go to church, and you'll get a ministry, and you'll be very fastidious about what it means to walk out a Christian life, just like you would if you were a plumber or an accountant or whatever you'd be. You'd do it in a very fastidious way. And you'd look at everybody else and the slobs of the world who can't seem to get their act together, and you're going to feel very high and very lifted up, and you're going to slip right into self-righteousness. Or you can be like the other half of the world, which is, you know, you're more picture-based, and you're not so consistent on doing everything you want to do. You start things, and you fail, and you make a new plan. You fail that plan. But you've got a lot of great qualities and traits. You just are not as disciplined. So you look at the disciplined folks, and you think, well, I'm a failure. And you slip into self-despair. And so we go off on two rails, self-righteousness or self-despair. Unless you look at Christ and you behold him. Discipleship has to flow out of your growing devotion and affections for Christ. The fear of hell will not stimulate. It, it may for a time stimulate changed behavior, but for the believer who has passed out of judgment into life, it has to be the affections. The affections have to be cultivated so that my discipleship is birthed out of my love. That my faithfulness to my dear wife is born out of my love for her, not of some commitment that I made close to 30 years ago. Has to be born now out of my love for her now. And a growing love leads to a growing obedience and thankfulness and gratitude. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, it means, number one, you have to understand he's the one calling us. And if he's called you, be gracious, be thankful, be happy. If stirrings are in your heart, then know that God's at work. If you're ambivalent to him, let me warn you. Let me warn you. I, I don't think the threat of judgment is a great inducement to salvation, but I think that the threat of judgment is a proper declaration to be made. That Jesus has come to establish a kingdom. And according to John the Baptist, he says the the axe is already at the root of the trees. So, so judgment has already begun. And if Jesus, if you're ambivalent to the call of Christ, then the end, the end of that run is standing before God with sin, without way of reconciliation. And so for the non-Christian, the warning is that those apart from Christ are against Christ. They're against, you, you are against Christ. You will face a day of judgment before God for failing to heed the call of the Son. It's, it's a dark day. It's a dark word, but it's a truth-filled word. It's, a, it's actually a loving word. So that's the first thing, is the call is clear. For the Christian here, though, I, I, let me just give you two thoughts to consider, and I want you to meditate on this. Is there a place in your life right now that you have to move to confession? You have to confess. Perhaps you have been too hasty in your decision to follow Christ. Perhaps you've been too quick to say, I'm going to follow Jesus without knowing the cost. Perhaps these costs that I just gave you terrify you. Perhaps you can never imagine bringing him up at work or speaking to a neighbor or, or, or sacrificing some of your money in terms of your generosity to the kingdom. If those things just terrify you, perhaps you need to confess. You've been too hasty in deciding, and you want to step back and rethink the whole Christian deal. That's fine to do that. I, mean, I encourage you to do that. Perhaps you have been too distracted. You've had many loves. Many good things in your life have supplanted your service to God. Maybe you, I'd never go on a mission trip because, you know, I, I just can't do it, or I don't want to put myself in harm's way. 
Maybe you need to repent of the fear of the cost that might be asked of you, as if God won't give you the grace to endure through those things. So, so first, folks, there might be confession for us to do. There might be some confession that, really, this is new to your ears for the first time. That, that if I were to ask you, in the last month, have you denied anything? Have you been denied anything because of your relationship to God in Christ? Have you said no to anything? Has anyone said anything to you about anything spiritual? might be a place for repentance. The second thing I'd ask you to consider is this, that you're going to die <clears throat> like I am. That, that life is brief, it's fast, it's quick. The reality of what is before us is coming fast. That, that we want to begin to look at life not as trying to just draw every bit of juice and satisfaction out of this life as if this life has no meaning. I want you to see in looking at heaven, that self-denial is gain. It's gain. I mean, to deny yourself is actually gain. That's what Jesus seems to indicate. I mean, don't you think that? In Matthew 13, when Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, he says the kingdom of God is like a treasure in the field, like the man who stumbles upon it. And it says in, when he finds it, in his joy, he sells everything he has to buy the treasure, to buy the field, to get the treasure. Can you imagine him? He opens the box and jewels upon jewels, and he's just putting them through his hands. He's thinking, this is untold value. He closes it up, puts it back in the field, runs everything that was precious to him 15 minutes before that. Gone. It is worthless to me. Get rid of all of it. Fire sale. Get the money by the field. It's gain to deny now for then. Now, you know, the North Raleigh context is, a, is a, a fluent context, isn't it? Well, Paul had some clear instructions for Timothy to tell his affluent church in Ephesus that self-denial was gain. He says in, in 1 Timothy, uh, he says, As for the rich in this present age, this is instructions to Timothy from the Apostle Paul to preach. So it could be that Timothy telling Tom to preach. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. In other words, many of us are holding on to things that are not truly life. Take hold of that which is truly life. I was thinking of an example to bring up in terms of uh, I'm trying to drive this home, and I thought about the purchase of Alaska. You know, Alaska was bought in uh, 1860s by Seward, and uh, when he bought it for $7.2 million, it was a lot of money back then. He bought Alaska. Alaska was just an icebox. In fact, they called it Seward's Icebox. They also called it Seward's Folly. Or uh, the, um, they had all kinds of pejorative terms for it. It was undiscovered. It was vast, but it was a wasteland. It was a tundra. There was nothing to it. There, there wasn't much there. Was it really worth the expense? 
They had no idea, of course, now knowing what we know, which is it's a gold mine. It's got untold riches, minerals, petroleum. It was never known. Was it worth the investment? Is he the fool who invested that money? No. He's now brilliant. It's a great move. Self-denial is gained for us. So, so let's think about this, both as individuals, but also as a church. What does the world see about our willingness to, to, to deny? What does the world see about our willingness to embrace costs and to, and to put Christ first? You know, we do have a corporate witness here in this community. You are known as individuals, but we have a corporate witness. What is our witness to people? How, do th- how does the community view this church? I was reading an article in CT, Christianity Today, and I came across a church in, uh, in Birmingham, Alabama, Brook Hills. Uh, it's a church that David Platt pastors. And in 2010, they decided to, to have this, uh, this goal to feed India. In other words, Compassion International is a ministry that feeds kids uh, in very destitute conditions. And they wanted to undergird and supply the money needed to feed every kid in India. They had to raise $525,000 for the year to feed India. They brought in trash from Birmingham. They tried to set up the stage like it was, a, like it was the squalor areas of India where these children are living and being fed. And, uh, and then out of this series and out of the money raised and out of the money given, out of that experience, 40, family, or 40 people, both couples and singles, decided to move to very difficult areas of Birmingham to minister the gospel in those contexts. That's profound. People were asking, what happens at a church that sends 40 people out into the difficult areas of Birmingham? Now, I don't want to follow Brook Hills. That's what God called them to do, and that's great. I don't want to follow another church. I want to follow Christ. But Christ calls us to do these things. What will that look like for us? I mean, you look at the next 12 to 18 months. These things aren't advanced in a day. But what does that look like for us? How does our discipleship display to a community where they look at us and they say, wow, that Jesus, he must really be valuable because look at what they're sacrificing and embracing and pursuing to do. It may be sending another family over with the Purdue's. That'd be a great thing to do. But it needs to start here as well. So let's take a few minutes now and pray. And the elder's going to close us in prayer in just a minute. Uh, but, but let's pray and, and let's use this time as a response, as a church, to God's word. This is a hard word. If I've offended somebody, my intention is not to do that, but it is to awaken you. Uh, if, if you need greater clarification, speak to an elder. I, I have the confidence of most in this church. Ask somebody next to you what things should look like in your life. But let me start, and then the elder is going to close us in prayer. And when you pray, we have a lot of people here, so let's just pray quickly. Let's pray loudly so that we can hear you and say, Amen, I agree with that. Father, give us the grace to hear this today and then think about it tomorrow. May it not go in our ear and leave our, our minds. Father, bring about a change that we wouldn't be the fool who looks in the mirror and forgets what he looks like. May we be a hearer, may we be a doer. By your grace, fueled by the beauty of Christ, I pray in the name of Jesus.